0: Does the report of a chemical gas attack in the civilian sector of Syria constitute a valid rationale for staging a military offensive against the Syrian government? What does the August 21st incident have in common with other historical triggers for military aggression? Can humanitarian concerns ever justify defiance of the UN Charter in Syria and elsewhere? Do the NATO interventions in Yugoslavia in 1999 and Libya in 2011 constitute success stories which could inform policy around Syria? In the next hour, we'll examine common justifications for war throughout history, including the so-called Responsibility to Protect Doctrine, with three analysts Richard Saunders of the Coalition Opposed to the Arms Trade, former Canadian Foreign Affairs Minister and University of Winnipeg President Lloyd Axworthy, and geopolitical analyst and award winning author Mahdi Nazamroya. On today's program, Justifying War, Yugoslavia to Syria. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of September 26, 2013. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and Campus Community Radio Station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major stories shaping our world today, from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the central website, globalresearch.ca. Our show is also broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. A day before the release of the UN mission report, another carefully documented report by Mother Agnes Mariam de Le Croix and the International Support Team for Musalaha in Syria, ISTEAMS, was released with minimal media coverage. Madi Nadarius Nazimroya, who examined the report, writes The ISTEAMS report does not deny that chemical weapons were used or that innocent Syrians have been killed. What the study does is logically point out through its observations that there is empirical evidence that the sample of videos that the U.S. intelligence community has analyzed and nominated as authentic footage has been stage-managed. Among a series of important findings, the iSteam's report notes that even though the attacks are said to have killed up to 1,400 people, mostly children appear in the videos, and several corpses are shown in different videos said to have been shot in various locations. While this report seriously challenges the assertion that the Syrian government was behind the attacks, it was not covered by the Western mainstream media, towing the imperial line and parroting Washington's claims, which still lack evidence and credibility. That's from the article, The Gauta Chemical Attacks, U.S.-backed False Flag? Killing Syrian Children to Justify a Humanitarian Military Intervention by Julie Levesque and Michel Chosodovsky, Published September 25, 2013. Quote, Libya would now be engulfed in civil war and bloodshed. Unquote. No. The war was ending, and Libya is engulfed in bloodshed. In March 2011, the African Union had a plan for peace in Libya, but was prevented by NATO through the creation of a no-fly zone and the initiation of bombing to travel to Libya to discuss it. In April the African Union was able to discuss its plan with Libyan President Muammar al-Gaddafi, and he expressed his agreement. NATO, which had obtained a UN authorization to protect Libyans alleged to be in danger, but no authorization to continue bombing the country or to overthrow the government, continued bombing the country and, and overthrowing the government. That's from the article Top 45 Lies in Obama's Speech at UN by David Swanson, posted September 25th, originally published in warisacrime.org When the British Parliament voted down providing cover for Obama's criminal attack on Syria, Parliament created space for Russia's President Putin to resolve the Syrian situation by attaining Syrian President Assad's agreement to join the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons and to turn over all Syrian chemical weapons to an international body. The warmonger Obama regime was outraged that Washington's military attack on Syria had been blocked, Washington and the Israeli lobby went to full-scale demonization of President Putin for orchestrating peace instead of war. The Obama regime is trying to block the agreement by insisting on incorporating into the U.N. resolution an opportunity for attacking Syria if Washington is not convinced that all chemical weapons are turned over. The entire world knows that Washington will again lie through its teeth, assert that all the weapons were not turned over, and use the wedge that Washington is attempting to force into the U.N. resolution to start another war. That comes from the article, Washington's Tyranny, What is the Real Agenda of Obama's War on Terror? by Paul Craig Roberts posted September 24th. Before the U.N. mission had reported its preliminary findings, Human Rights Watch jumped the gun on 10 September with its own report written by Peter Beckert, the organization's emergencies director. On 11 September, a day after the Human Rights Watch report was published, the international support team for Ha in Syria published its unique and important analysis of documentation nominated by U.S. intelligence. Having carefully and thoughtfully analyzed the data, including a number of images also published in the Bukert Report, the study discovered not only widespread manipulation of evidence, but in the tradition of BBC reporting in Syria, they also discovered that photographs of victims in Cairo had been described as victims of a chemical attack in Syria. This preliminary study concludes that there has been gross media manipulation and calls for an independent, unbiased international commission to identify the children who were killed and try to find the truth of the case. This writer has not seen any Human Rights Watch document which refers to the ICE teams study. That comes from the article, The Syria Chemical Weapons Attack... Human Rights Watch is Manipulating the Facts by Richard Lightbone, posted September 24th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. chemical gas attack against civilian districts in Damascus has provided the main justification in recent weeks for a military offensive against Syria by U.S. and Allied forces. Historically, outrages of this nature have been invoked to mobilize support for military action. They're called war pretext incidents. Richard Saunders is the coordinator of the Coalition Opposed to the Arms Trade and publisher and researcher with Press for Conversion magazine. He studied and written extensively about war pretext incidents. Richard Saunders joined us from Ottawa. The, uh, the whole business about Obama and the red line, uh, that's, uh, the, the, this chemical weapons attack, and, and the way it just hit the media in, in a very big way. Um, w- when you first heard about this, uh, what were your thoughts? Was this, uh, were you thinking of this in terms of what's, what's been known as a war pretext incident?
1: Well, yeah. When uh, Obama made his speech back in August of last year, um, it seemed to me pretty obvious that he was setting up, setting up uh, for a future war pretext uh, incident that could, they could generate. Uh, basically, he said if Syria were to use chemical weapons, then we would seriously think about uh, attacking them. Whereas he had been uh pretending at least not to be really very keen on a military strike against syria mm-hmm. uh he then gave his red line speech August twentieth of twenty twelve and uh it sounded like okay they they're gonna set up a uh i mean they could very well set up a, an attack and then make it look as if the uh Syrian government had done it, and then they'd have their excuse the excuse the pretext that they needed to go to war it's not the Real reason for them going to war, but they would use that as the as their reason as their excuse that they could uh, generate pub- enough public support to uh to rationalize going into uh into war because you can't really tell people the real reasons for war if you told them the real reasons they people wouldn't support it because people are generally not warlike they don't want to go to war they don't like to kill people. That's, I mean, this is shown by how difficult it is for the military to get people to kill people. They have to go through a lot of training and brainwashing. And, and uh, similarly, the public doesn't want to go to war. So um, you need really good excuses uh, to get people to think that the wars are being fought for good reasons, for moral, just, humanitarian reasons, and. Uh, you know, in order to just stop a bigger crime or more violence from happening or, you know, to curb a dictator or to promote human rights, etc., etc. That's the biggest thing, lately is the, the whole responsibility to protect uh, doctrine, which is being used now to, uh, to get support from progressive organizations to endorse uh, wars and regime changes and bombing campaigns that are really being fought for other reasons. I mean the real reasons for war are, uh, are, are more economic, really,
0: and geopolitical. And yeah, that's, uh, I, I guess, to, to define our terms, I mean, we we're talking about fabricated pretexts, not the real reason.
1: Yeah, um, there's different ways you can, uh, the pretext sometimes they're totally fabricated. Like, for example, with the Vietnam War, that was completely fabricated. There was a a supposed incident in the Gulf of Tonkin that's become quite famous now, the Tonkin incident, which, you know, they said that, uh, the Vietnamese had attacked a U.S. Uh, ship, and, uh, and so this was the, the excuse that, that Johnson needed to, uh, just to really escalate the war in Vietnam, uh, the, the Tonkin incident. So that was totally fabricated. There was no attack. Sometimes they'll provoke an attack. Um, Like, for example, with the Mexican-American War, that's more like what happened then in 1846. They sent their troops down to what they said was the border, but it was actually in Mexican territory, and they paraded their troops back and forth uh, deliberately in order to provoke the Mexican side to uh, fire at them, Um, even though they were on Mexican territory. Uh So then they they um, they said that they had been attacked on American soil by foreign troops, and so they that's how they got their uh, in a nutshell that's how they got their uh, public support for that one. It was just provoked. And then other times it's not really clear whether it's fabricated or or what it is. Like with the Spanish American War, it, it looks pretty clear that it was fabricated, but we can't be. Sure. I don't think there's actually. Perfectly clear evidence of a smoking gun. In that case, that was in uh, 1898. There was a big uh, U.S. warship in the harbor of Havana, and um, it blew up. And all these uh, um, U.S. sailors on board were, were killed, and the ship sank. And they immediately blamed it on the uh, on the Spanish and said that there had been a mine placed on the ship, and that, that had caused it. Um, but uh, subsequent uh, research, even by the U.S. military, showed that it was not a mine on the outside of the ship. It blew up from the inside. There was it could have been an accident. Maybe there was a, you know, all the munitions were stored right next to the uh, to the coal bunker, and so maybe that caused it. And then there, but there's allegations that it was caused, that it was deliberately done uh, to create that pretext. Well, in, in, in any case, the media jumped in. Hurst, Randolph Hearst, you know, used his newspapers to promote the, uh, you know, to promote the war against Spain, and they, they got a a lot of colonies out of that. After that very short war, they got uh, Cuba and the Philippines and uh, Puerto Rico and a bunch of other places that they
0: just absorbed into the American uh, empire. I think with the whole war pretext uh, approach, it seems clear that the the major media the agenda setting media are pretty key players
2: mm-hmm. in order to
0: make this happen how how closely do you have any insights into how closely the media is uh, uh, connected with that whole apparatus because it, it almost seems like they're taking their orders from the government well,
1: i don't think it's as simple as just that they're taking orders you know they don't have to be given orders they know um they know what uh, they they agree they basically want to go to war too uh, they want to, uh, they're itching for a war, so they're looking for any pretext as well. Not as if they, uh, you know, there's uh, an order that comes down from the president. Okay, uh, you know, we're going to go ahead on this day, and, uh, you know, they, they're they just, they know what to do. They know, uh, you know, they're itching for the war as much as the uh as much as the government is, I think. They're, they're big, huge corporations, and uh, they, their advertising comes from these huge corporations. As I mm-hmm. said earlier, the wars are really fought for the benefit of the, of the huge corporate interests. You know, whether they're getting mm-hmm. they're a sort bunch of natural resources out of a country, or whether they're, um, you know, using, uh, exploiting labor in a country, getting basically slave labor uh, out of factories, or or, or whether they're, Using a war to get their military bases spread into a country so that they can uh, dominate a region. Uh, the, the, the corporations uh, know what side of the bread they're, you know, which side it's buttered on. So they they uh, they're quite uh, able to figure out for themselves when they should start banging the banging the drums for war and promoting promoting the war.
0: Could you talk about some of the i mean there there have been wars through through history that the, the wider public would uh, seem to uh sanction like world war two for example mm-hmm. uh, do, do, are there instant uh, e- examples from uh those those sorts of conflicts well, where the war, war II is, world
1: war two is a very interesting example because um in that case the corporations did not want to go to war uh the big bankers and the industrialists were actually quite supportive of Hitler and they had helped to fund Hitler's rise to power and they were quite happy to see Hitler uh strong and uh powerful and they wanted him to attack uh the Soviet Union. Uh they wanted they that was their real enemy, not Hitler. Uh so they w- they were quite happy to to stay out of the war and not get involved in the war. But uh there were other people uh that wanted the America, to, the United States, to join the war. And so they created this pretext in spite of what the uh, me, the media wanted. So you ne- they needed to, uh, I mean, Pearl Harbor was definitely, uh, they knew that that attack was coming, and they provoked it. They wanted the Japanese to attack Pearl Harbor. That's really clear. That's from, established
0: in... Uh, proven that was uh... that's
1: very proven, yeah. There was uh Robert Stinnett, if anybody wants to read the best stuff on that, it's Robert Stinnett who wrote uh, Day of Deceit, The Truth About F D R in Pearl Harbor in nineteen ninety nine, he got uh access to a lot of uh previously secret documents and there was one document by a guy named Arthur M- McCollum who wrote a secret memo. It's a five page memo submitted to the uh to the Navy um and uh it basically outlined a plan sort of a 10-point plan on uh, it's an eight-point plan actually on how to provoke a japanese attack on the united states and it you know it says do this and then do do this and do this and do this and do this and then um and then they so they did all those things, and after they had done the the last one, basically Japan attacked. And they knew that Japan was going to attack, and they knew the exact place and and when they were going to attack because they had broken the uh, Japanese codes. This is known too. So that's very clearly it was a it was a, an incident where they provoked the attack.
0: Mm. Um, what about in, in in more recent years, uh, some of the more compelling examples of these fabricated war pretexts.
1: Um, hmm. Well, let's see. Uh, okay, there's so many examples. I did a. Maybe I should point out that I, I did a. An issue of Press for Conversion, which is the magazine of, of the Coalition of and sure. it's called "Going to War: The American Use of War Pretext Incidents." And so people can look up there and you can see the details there on about 16 different examples of major wars since the Mexican-American War 1846, going up to 2003. So this thing was published in in January of of 2003, just before the the war in Iraq. Um, So, for example, let's see, I don't know, uh, maybe the 1999 NATO war against Yugoslavia, there was um, an incident that happened at Racek. So they blamed the uh, the the, uh, Serbian government, the Yugoslav government, of attacking these innocent civilians uh, and killing a bunch of them, and there were photos of them and this American ambassador went there and they photographed them et cetera. So they had these people lying in the ditch and. whatnot. but really what it what was going on was that the uh, these weren't just innocent civilians, they were uh, rebels that had been attacking the police and then there was a there had been back and forth fighting uh, between the two sides. For quite some time, and then they just happened to just pick a certain moment when the Serbian uh, police or military i can 't remember which now had, uh, had killed these attackers so then they they uh, they used that incident and they blew it really big in the media and grabbed a hold of it uh, so another thing was the of course the, uh, the incubator. Babies in, in Iraq in 1991. People probably know about that. Hill and Moulton, the big PR firm, helped fabricate that, and they used uh, they used the daughter of the Kuwaiti uh, ambassador to the U.S. to pretend that she was just some you know, random girl who had seen these. Iraqi soldiers come in and throw these babies on the floor out of the incubators. Well, that was all fabricated, but it was great for the media. The media loved it, and the public were just outraged and just totally um, made up. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, we actually, another thing that people should look into if they're interested in this is is Operation Northwoods. I'm sure you know about that. Mm -hmm. That was a secret document that was released. I think it was soon after the j f k movie came out there was a bunch of documents that were released as a result. It was of james
0: pression. bamford that brought it forward, wasn't it uh
1: it might have been him yeah uh, so what these documents showed are from nineteen sixty two is that the u s was the u s military the joint chiefs of staff, which is the heads of all the army navy military uh um, chiefs in the u s uh had commissioned a report uh, they wanted a uh they wanted a some research done on how they could get a war with Cuba. They wanted desperately a war with Cuba in '62, and so they asked this this character to come up with uh, with uh, some pla- some ideas, some plans. So he came up with about 20 different ideas on how to provoke a war with Cuba, and it, a lot of them were fabrications. Like so, they would say, "Well, you know what we could do is we could, uh, you know, we could have bombing attacks in Florida, and uh, we would blow up uh, people, and people would be killed, and then we would blame it on the Cubans." Or that I mean, we could have a, a plane, uh, you know, make it appear as if the Cubans had shot down a, a plane carrying passengers, and they had this elaborate scheme on how they could get the, how they could get this plane up there, and it wouldn't be actually have people in it, and, and how they would get the people, they would be seen to be entering the plane. And there were these sort of spooks, and then they would, they would land somewhere else, and then leave the plane, and the plane would go up, and then. Uh, the U.S. would get a hold of a MiG fighter and dress it up in Cuban um, colors, and then uh, it would fire and kill and knock down this passenger plane. And then another passenger plane would be nearby and would see it. So this is all a big elaborate plan that they were cooking up, and it's all there and there's three secret documents that are released. So it's very clear that that they do these things. I mean, uh, they admit it. Do I mean they? release this document showing that they do it. So All through history, you can see these amazing things, and the patterns are so obvious that after a while you just see them and you just go, well, that looks like another pretext incident. Mm-hmm.
0: So, um, going back to the, the most recent, uh, being the, the chemical gas attack, I, I mean, are, are there just a, a couple of telltale signals uh, that... that that show uh, I don't know Hill and noton's signatures or, or what have you Yeah, sometimes you can see the fingerprints
1: pretty clearly um well i I suggest people go and look at uh stuff that's been written at, on the global research site. There's a good article that's there today uh, called uh the gouda chemical attacks u s Backed false flag question mark um killing. Syrian children to justify humanitarian military uh, intervention. So that's a good article that's just been posted today. Um, one, of the, one of the things about that that I find quite uh, quite significant is that Turkey uh, arrested some of the Syrian rebels, and they're on trial. They've, they were arrested uh, last uh, May, May 23rd. The Turkish police arrested these rebels and found that they had sarin uh, uh, gas. Uh, and they're on trial. they were recently on trial, and uh the trial their trial and their um indictments are they being they're being found guilty of uh, of these crimes it just coincides with the chemical attacks so they were here are Syrian rebels with chemicals chemical weapons um another thing is the u n investigator uh Carla del ponte she said that uh, this was back in May of 2013, she said there are quote, strong concrete suspicions, but not yet incontrovertible proof that it was the rebels that had carried out an attack, a chemical uh, attack back then. Um,
0: you, the rebels of the U.S. and its partners are supporting?
1: Yeah, yeah. And then there's been reports that the uh, the Saudi intelligence agencies have supported the Syrian uh, rebels with with chemical weapons um the, the thing that really makes you have to be suspicious, I think, is that um it makes no sense that Syria would use chemical weapons um after they've been told quite clearly by the u s president that if they do use chemical weapons, then the u s will attack or that it would you know it's much more likely that it will attack thats that's a red line. Obama on August 20th last year said that a chemical weapons attack by the government would, you know, they would attack. The U.S. would basically attack if the Syrians did that. So why would they do it? They don't want the U.S. to attack. And also, very strange, it's one year and a day after his speech that this attack comes. It's almost as if the uh, attack was being done on a day that would make it that would tie it to that red line again why would the Syrians do it on that day another thing is why would they do it right near where the um, UN inspectors are (laughs) I think that the UN inspectors had just got there and they were close to it close to that location so why would they why would the Syrians do it at that time right at that very moment it makes no sense.
0: Well, Richard Saunders, it's always great having you on the show. I, I thank you very much for that uh analysis and uh I guess we'll just see how things uh re- unravel uh, as the Syrian crisis uh moves on. Thank you well, so thanks. much.
1: It's uh, it's very fa- it's really fascinating uh to look at these things. And I really uh, would uh, encourage people to to dig into these to the history of these things because you, you see the history repeated enough times uh with every war uh, basically that the US has promoted then uh, eventually uh, you see the patterns and you can start to be more skeptical and you won't you kind of inoculated against the
0: uh, against uh, being sucked in and, and yeah intellectual self defense
1: yeah okay okay thanks a lot
0: Thanks a lot, Richard. Richard Saunders uh, coordinates the Coalition Opposed to the Arms Trade and is publisher of Press for Conversion magazine. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour broadcast on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on partner radio stations across Canada. You're also podcast at globalresearch.ca and air Mondays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. Lloyd Axworthy is a former Canadian foreign affairs minister who co-wrote a commentary in the Globe and Mail in August encouraging the Obama administration to conduct a humanitarian intervention in Syria based on what he called the Kosovo model. The Global Research News Hour interviewed Dr. Axworthy at his office at the University of Winnipeg. Lloyd Axworthy, uh, you were uh, a former foreign affairs minister and uh, you and a colleague uh, cabinet colleague Alan Rock uh, co-wrote a, an article in the Globe and Mail on uh, the uh, Canada's um, preferred role in terms of dealing with the, the crisis in Syria and you alluded to uh, I guess what's called the the Kosovo precedent as a means of uh, reconciling the, uh, the veto, uh, apparently the Perennial veto by uh, the uh, by Russia as uh, an obstacle to action. Um, do you want to talk about that uh, that actual sure. precedent and how it applies here?
2: Well, I, I think it really starts when uh, when I was in foreign affairs, and the world was changing. The Cold War had come to an end, and what was appearing increasingly were a variety of conflicts that had huge impacts on the life and well-being of civilians. Rwanda being a good case where a genocide took place. Uh, The Balkans Kosovo where there was large-scale ethnic cleansing and large-scale murder of Kosovars and uh, Muslims. Uh, The Democratic Republic of Congo was going through the same thing and I think what we were seized by at the time is that there had to be a much better way of protecting people. And part of the problem is that much of the violence against civilians was by their own governments. And uh, when I was Foreign Affairs Minister, established an International Commission on Intervention and in Sovereignty to say that simply because you call yourself a sovereign state it doesn't give you the right to murder your own people. And uh, that grew into the concept of responsibility to protect, which was uh, brought forward to the United Nations in 2005, adopted by virtually all the world leaders. And its its basic maxim is that uh, uh, a president, a general, a foreign minister, whoever is responsible for policies, uh, if they undertake a serious... Uh, set of atrocities against their own population, the international community has a responsibility to provide protection for those people. It is a recognition that the old sovereign nation-state of the 19th century needs to be modified and amended. And Kosovo was the first time that we really put it to the test because, uh, well, the concept has a lot to do with prevention, a lot to do with trying to use diplomacy to Get uh, governments who are murdering their people to change their minds, uh, or in the case, in some cases, uh, using the International Criminal Court to uh, hold them accountable. Uh, sometimes uh, the real test is: are you? Can you use force to bring about some resolution of that kind of uh, conflict situation? And uh, that was adopted by the United Nations in 2005. People forget that, but Kosovo was the real test when, in fact, it was done. Uh, it worked. Uh, Milosevic eventually ended up going to the uh, International Criminal Tribunal. Uh, and so that concept, we, both Alan and I, Alan was the UN ambassador. I was a foreign minister. We worked together on it, and we felt that what was happening in Syria was a pretty good example of where responsibility to protect should be applied.
0: Yeah, I know that the uh, the concept... Of of responsibility to protect. It's it's in principle it's it's kind of hard to argue against it. But I guess uh, in fact I I know that a a, a former UN humanitarian coordinator I spoke to some time ago, Hans von Sponek, seemed very complimentary of you for uh, championing that. However, I I have also heard a a lot of criticism in the sense that in practice you end up intervening in areas uh, or using. The, that R2P concept as a, as a cover for uh, some sort of a geo strategic initiative, uh, you know, saying, well, we've got to stop the, the, the violence. It's not really applied in a universal way. So, for well, you know, that's,
2: that's not exactly right. Uh, the concept uh, is, is more than a concept, it's actually a protocol which sets out very clear steps to guide, to ensure against uh, an individual country using it as a pretext to intervene. It's got to go through uh, multilateral decision-making. It's a military means that have to be limited. You have to demonstrate evidence about them, what atrocities are taking place. Uh, and so there's a whole set of criteria that are applied to R2P, uh, beginning with the fact that uh, it's a last resort. You don't do it without having tested all the other... Uh, toolkits that are available and diplomacy and sanctions and naming and shaming and all those things. Uh, and it has worked in many cases. I mean, it's not, uh, it doesn't work perfectly because nothing in the international world works perfectly. It worked in Libya. Uh, it uh, had a very major impact in Kenya to begin with when Kofi and Ann had in, but it wasn't that wasn't a forceful one. It worked in uh, the East Timor, worked in uh, the Balkans. So it's not... And I don't think in any of those cases, because I was involved in many of them, there was some secret reservoir of oil that we were trying to achieve. It was just that uh, ultimately we need to have a world based on a rule of law and some sense of justice and equity. And simply because there is this old concept of sovereignty around, that shouldn't get in the way of protecting innocent people from being murdered by their own governments. I think
0: one... Example that comes to mind to trying to illustrate the point that's uh, being related here is uh, the, the situation with people in Gaza you know, who have been confronted by attacks from Israel. Uh, I know Amnesty International among other human rights organs, have spoken about uh, or reported on the use of white phosphorus during the uh, operation Cast Lead in 2008-2009 and we don't seem to see the, the R2P concept being applied there. Is that is that a different situation, in your view, or why, why, is it, why does there appear to be the appearance of a double standard?
2: Well, as I recall, and I was on the board of Human Rights Watch for, for several years, uh, those incidents took place before the R2P concept was adopted, uh, so there's an ex post facto feeling. I think it does act as a deterrent, and if there are cases, I mean, I, uh, I think one of the criteria measurement is the degree to which there is a uh, uh, large-scale, um, effort to mutilate, murder, or ethnically cleanse people. That's one of the criteria that have to be applied. But you know, the reality is you also have to get political support for it. I mean, it's never, uh, there's no law that can uh, ever be applied if there is a division and fracture as there is now. And That's why one of the reasons uh, uh, both Alan Rock and I made the case that before we really get a chance to have R2P become a broader principle, and by the way, it, it's a principle that just doesn't have to apply, or a protocol that applies just to cases of extreme violence. It could also apply to problems related to uh, natural disaster or uh, criminal cartels. I mean, whenever a country loses its ability to protect its citizens, it loses its sovereign, its sovereign divine rights. Uh, but you have to have political support for it, and. The problem is when countries like our own and others don't uh, make it a major platform at the UN and other places, uh, you can't develop the kind of political will that's required. To uh, and, and this is true in the domestic situation. If if most citizens didn't agree that there's laws against murder, uh, then we'd have an awful lot more chaos than we have domestically. But it still means people commit murder. Uh, but far less than they would if there wasn't a law and a police to stop them.
0: Look at the model of humanitarian intervention envisioned by Dr. Axworthy for Syria and similar countries. We are now joined on the phone by Mahdi Darius Nazamroya. He is a research associate with the Center for Research on Globalization. He's the author of The Globalization of NATO and the War on Libya and Re- the Recolonization of Africa. And as a geopolitical analyst, he specializes in the politics of Central Asia and the Middle East. He contributes to the Strategic Culture Foundation, Moscow, and is a member of the Scientific Committee of Geopolitica in Italy. Welcome uh, to the Global Research News Hour, Mahdi Nazamroya.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Okay, so, um, first of all, you had a chance to listen to uh, some of uh, President uh, Dr. Axworthy's uh, comments about the. Um, the uh, proper approach to uh, Syria and the whole humanitarian intervention model uh, based on the the Kosovo model. Um, Do you have any thoughts that that, uh, come to mind about some of what he had to say?
3: Well, with all due respect to uh, Mr. Axworthy, uh, the president of the University of Winnipeg has his facts wrong when he states that uh, uh, Libya was a model of success. If he wants to call Kosovo and Libya, uh, models of success, he has his facts wrong. Actually, those aren't the only uh, misperceptions he has, to put it politely. He has his facts wrong about Kosovo. Uh, when he stated several times uh, there was genocide took place in uh, the province of Kosovo, uh, he is actually contradicting what the United Nations has ruled. Uh United Nations court has ruled that... Uh, there was no genocide there. That includes a panel, a tribunal of international judges, one of which was Albanian. They ruled that no genocide took place. NATO has said the same thing, inclu- including a Canadian military officer who served as the OSCE's Kosovo verification, with the Kosovo verification mission. Even the OSCE have said that no genocide took place. So Mr. Axworthy has his facts wrong about that. Now.
0: What about, about atrocities?
3: Death. Well, there was deaths uh, mm-hmm. in both Libya and Kosovo. But th- it, 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 to say that there were deaths and we need to intervene is not enough. We need to contextualize those deaths. How did they take place? Well, they first took place when weapons shipments were being sent into these places to, uh, to uh, non-government uh, movements or militias. In the case of Kosovo, it was the KLA, the Kosovo Liberation Army. And in the case of Libya, it was a group of rebels with various names and affiliations. One of them was the um, Islamic Fighting Group of Libya, which is affiliated to Al-Qaeda. But before I mention that, I want to point out that in Kosovo, as the United Nations has ruled, there was no genocide, but there were deaths. How did those deaths start? How did the whole situation in Kosovo started? It started when the KLA started targeting Kosovar Albanians, not just Serbs, Kosovar Albanians who worked in the civil service. They were they meant to do this to drive them out and to create a, a gap between the Serbs and the uh, Kosovar Albanians, to make it an ethnic issue, you know, Serbs versus Albanians in Kosovo. So that, that's why the Yugoslav Federal Army intervened into Kosovo. Uh, it wasn't because of uh genocide or ethnic cleansing, of course, I have to mention that uh th- this matter wasn't a bed of roses there there was mistakes uh mistakes and um and uh you know the Serbian forces there got out of hand in, in several situations, but they originally went in there to protect Kosovar Albanians, not just Serbs. Okay, so that, that's the issue of Kosovo. Libya it has been
0: it, depicted as basically just going out and killing all the, uh, the Kosovars. It's uh, that, that uh, without that context, that it was essentially a, in a protective mode. It was, a,
3: yes, it was in a protective mode, and, and also was to, to preserve security in in the uh, Albanian-dominated province of Kosovo. Uh, but uh, I want to also mention Libya.
0: You were in Libya in 2011, were you not?
3: Yes, I was in Libya. I saw R2P firsthand. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, before I actually jumped to Libya, I, I, let me backtrack and say something about Kosovo. More Kosovo Albanians were killed by the NATO bombing than by Serbs. So we should keep that in mind.
0: And, and there were also. Very- and what about uh, like other sorts of uh, you know, the, the the infrastructure of the country? It was well, they
3: bombed infrastructure in both cases. Now, this is where I want to speak about my first-hand example on Libya on the ground when I was in North Africa. They bombed the hospitals. They bombed residential neighborhoods. They wa- bombed water treatment facilities, uh, food depots, uh, electricity uh, infrastructure, hospitals, uh, universities, schools residential areas if i haven't mentioned that i don't think that's a responsibility to protect that's creating humanitarian disasters they are creating humanitarian disasters by attacking i mean if that's mis r2p uh, that's not a that's not a responsibility to protect it, it, it's it's actually uh it's actually imperialist war and war uh, and crimes against
0: humanity. Could you clarify something for me? I mean, is it your opinion that those, uh, you know, the, the, all that infrastructure, the schools and whatnot, were, were deliberately targeted, or was that just what they call collateral damage?
3: Well, there was no military sites near them, no soldiers near them, and yes, it was deliberate. In fact, when they bombed the radio station, TV, television stations in uh, Libya, they said it was. Uh, it was because of R2P that they killed all those journalists. They said that what they were reporting amounted to, to, uh, crimes. Mm-hmm. It was basically to have a mono- monopoly over information. So they were deliberately, of course, they, Tripoli was under siege. And to get there, there I, I'm going to put it, paraphrase what the Prime Minister of Italy said. The former Prime Minister of Italy during the time of the war. He said that the whole point of this war is to make their lives as miserable as possible, the people of Libya and Tripoli, so they actually do rebel against Gaddafi. That that was the whole point. I mean, who sent the weapons in? How did these humanitarian disasters start? They start when the weapons are sent to one of the sides, and that side specifically is the side that's not the legitimate government, and then they start fighting. If Mr. Axworthy really cares about protecting human lives, he should be lobbying for the United States and other countries, including the league of, the most anti-democratic league in that region, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and the United Arab Emirates, and Jordan, from sending weapons in to these countries.
0: Mm.
3: How are we working with these tyrannical, undemocratic countries like Saudi Arabia, where there are no human rights
0: Mm.
3: to help other countries, I mean, the, 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 there there seems to be something very odd with this coupling, Canada-United States working with countries like Saudi Arabia, that are sending weapons, supporting um, people that eat other people's hearts, you know, r- people that are raping it, people that cut the throats of people just because they're Christians or belong to a religious sect that they, 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 they don't uh, ideologically agree with. I mean, this is the type of people we want to intervene to protect. I mean, if we really care about any humanitarian process in Libya, the first thing we're going to do is stop sending weapons into that country, which is making the situation much, much, much worse.
0: Hmm. Well, uh, if I could just, I'm just going to quote something from the the article he wrote in the the Globe and Mail with Alan Rock. Uh, he's uh, you know referring to the. Um, the U.N. Security Council and the the Responsibility to Protect Doctrine. And and it says, quote, uh, that the the U.N. Security Council did not intend that Urgent humanitarian responses would be hostage to vetoes unreasonably exercised out of self-interest by one or more of the permanent five council members. The very purpose of R2P is that we should all protect innocent lives without reference to purely national interests or crass political gamesmanship. And I think in the context he was referring to Russia, Um, but uh, how how would you address that uh, sentiment?
3: Well, I'm going to make something very clear. When he talks about humanitarian action, he means means an invasion and a war. That's very clear. He's not asking for, let's send food supplies to Libya. Humanitarian action, replace that word with a war, an attack, or an invasion on Syria. He's saying the Russians, and I have to add the Chinese as well, are vetoing an attack on Syria. We want this attack to be legal. We're going to say we're doing it for the Syrian people. And because they've prevented us from attacking, we need new measures. I mean, R2P is the... If we look at every single case of this R2P doctrine in practice, despite what Mr. Axworthy thinks it can be used for, and despite what many people might think it might be used for, and many of these people have a noble vision for the use of responsibility to protect and are human genuinely... Uh, supporting it about it with humanitarian concerns. Despite what they say, every case of R2P has been used for negative, nefarious reasons, from Libya to Kosovo. They have been used for negative reasons, and not only that, if we measure them in qualitative and quantitative ways, they were negative. The people did not, the quality of lives did not become better, the living standards did not go up. Actually, after our so-called humanitarian intervention in Kosovo, it had the highest suicide rates in Europe. Uh, suicide jumped up there because life became so miserable. If you ask Kosovo Albanians what they think about their country, they're going to tell you, we own nothing, and this place has essentially become a colony. That That is not success. Libya is a country that's broken. It's basically decentralized. You have tribalism now. You have little fiefdoms. The government is not in control of most of the territories of the country. Uh, there's armed gangs, lawlessness. People are being killed. There's robbery. A country that had a relatively low rate of crime, uh, much lower than ours in Canada, is now filled with daily crimes. People are being kidnapped. Uh, they're being killed in the streets, gunned down. Uh, no oil is even being sent. Its economy is in disaster. This is a country with the highest living standards in Africa. One of the highest living standards in Africa. Uh, and economic success has been brought down to its knees. Now, if that, if this is a model of success that Mr. Axworthy is talking about, then success in Syria is going to destroy that country and then cause regional instability. Let's see what our intervention in Libya did. Did it not lead to a, a war in Mali? Did it not lead to instability in fighting in Niger or terrorist events in Algeria? Have weapons in Libya not been smuggled and sent to other parts of the world, including uh, Syria, where they're being used to fight? Uh, This is not success. This is actually disastrous. Any more of these successes, and we're going to ignite much bigger problems in the world that won't be contained to specific regions.
0: I guess I have... uh some curiosity about uh, the uh, invocation or, or the, the, the genesis of the R2P concept. It has been invoked in the past, e- even in the very distant past, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken.
3: Oh, yes, definitely, I'm, and I'm very glad you brought this up, Michael. Uh, the first people we can see talking about responsibility to protect in contemporary times would, would be the Nazis. Their responsibility to protect... And, and Mr., what Mr. Axworthy is uh, is advocating for is very similar to what the Nazis advocated for when they invaded Czechoslovakia. They said that the Sudetenland ethnic Germans, who formed a majority in the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia, were being mistreated, and because of humanitarian reasons and concern, they intervened there and they annexed it. I mean so that puts them on the same page and and many people in Europe agreed with this actually in Germany it was very popular and many people in, in Europe agreed with the move but looking in hindsight we know that the German the Nazis lied about a lot of things even though their citizens in a lot of countries that supported them in Europe didn't know these things. Uh, they're, they're, the German people didn't know they're on the wrong side of history, and they didn't know they're being led into another world war. Here, too, in North America, specifically our country, Canada, a lot of people don't realize that these people that are advocating for responsibility to protect are pushing us further into wars. Where, where is the next country where we're going to have our responsibility to protect? I mean, look at the, a country like uh, Congo in Central Africa. Millions of people have died there. Very few people have said anything about responsibility to protect there. Very few people have said anything about Bahrain. Very few people have said anything about Saudi Arabia. It just happens to be that the countries that are not in our political orbit or clients are the ones where we're invoking responsibility to protect in Uh, Sudan, Syria, Libya. These are the countries. And, And if we carry on like this, uh what's to say that the United nations won't end up like the League of nations a failure we're on that path uh with all these unilateral actions, these so called responsibility to protect the Japanese did the same thing in, in China too. They said that they use very similar excuses, not just humanitarian context, terrorist uh bombings of railroads. Uh, When we know it was the Japanese who did it themselves, these these unilateral actions, which is what the R2P is essentially coming down to, it essentially is unilateral in the sense that a group of countries, a small group of countries that very vocally always call themselves the international community, this small group of countries is basically a few countries in the EU, Canada, the United States, Israel, Japan, Australia, Australia. Singapore, a few countries, they're saying that they're the entire international community, but the opinions of countries like Ukraine, Russia, Kazakhstan, China, Armenia, Iran, uh, uh, Sudan, Algeria, Brazil, India, Argentina, Venezuela, Cuba, they don't count. They're not part of the international community. So whenever we hear countries saying the international community, we they're appropriating those words to justify uh, nefarious uh, wars.
0: Mm -hmm. So, um, do you see that, uh, I mean, if if basically, uh, to to sort of paraphrase, if you're saying that the humanitarian intervention is essentially a propaganda ploy to justify rallying a a population uh, into a military conflict for, I guess, imperialist reasons, then... um, Do you you see much hope that that, uh, that the wider public will see through this? Uh, Are we seeing it now with regard to Syria?
3: Well, if you want to look at the cheerleaders for humanitarian intervention, it's very odd. We have uh, liberals, and I mean not big L liberals, I mean people who consider themselves liberals uh, that support it, Uh, some progressive people, I guess you may call them. And at the same time, you see people like John McCain, Uh, Joseph Lieberman, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, the um, uh, PNAC, a bunch of neoconservative think tanks, all supporting it as well. There's some sort of alliance between them for these wars. Um, And and in regards to Syria, I I think people don't buy what what they're saying at all. I mean, when they start seeing, when people are realizing that for some reason, um, the the people that we've been told by the U.S. government that they're fighting the last decade in the global war on terror are the ones they're supporting in Syria. But that's why nine percent of Americans only support a war; ninety-one don't. Uh, the majority of the world is against it. Even the U- United Kingdom's uh, Parliament in in uh, in London they 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 revolted. There was a parliamentary revolt. They're aware that this war, uh, won't be popular, has zero support, and most people are really aware that there's no humanitarian concerns. I mean, John McCain, who was pushing for this war in the United States, has been grilled by his constituents saying, we're going, we don't want to go there to help anybody. It's, it's for very bad reasons. If they really want to help anybody, they got to stop sending the arms to these groups that are killing people indiscriminately and destroying Syria's society. If they were real revolutionaries like Che Guevara, they would not attack marketplaces in Libya or the universities or the towns or civilians or churches or blow up mosques. They would be going for political targets. They would be going after the regime, not against innocent civilians. But instead, they're spreading chaos in that country. By attacking and weakening it.
0: Well, Amadi Nazamroya, I really want to thank you for uh, those uh, perspectives that you've brought to this uh, very important debate and uh, hope that we can uh, touch base again soon for more analysis from you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Michael. Amadi Nazamroya is a geopolitical analyst based in Montreal. He is the award-winning author of The Globalization of NATO and the War on Libya and the Recolonization of Africa. He's also a frequent contributor to globalresearch.ca. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. Starting the first week of October, the Global Research News Hour will air on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, Canada at its new time, Fridays at 1 o'clock p.m. Central Time. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.